Smart Council is a joint production of Multnomah University, Alternative Behavioral Therapy, and New Pattern Counseling. Welcome to Smart Council. How do early relationships affect current relationships? Smart Council provides perspectives and resources on spirituality, mental health, addictions, relationships, and trauma to providers and students. I'm Reese. I'm Joshua. And we are here for another delightful hour of stimulating conversation. How are you, Josh? I'm very good. Good. Me too. We are talking about relationships because, honestly, why not? Who doesn't have a relationship? Well, actually, some people don't have a relationship. But yeah. We might get to that. We might get to that. <laughs> uh, we could argue that a high percentage of what we do in counseling is relationship-oriented. Right. Maybe even all of it. For sure, because it's a relational practice. Mm-hmm. We're in relationship with the person that we're trying to, to work with. And most of their problems that they bring have something to do with relationship as well. Right. Today we're talking about how do our early relationships, or we could say childhood relationship, or family of origin relationships continue to have an impact on us today. Yep. And this is definitely one of my favorite topics, and so we're going to have to try really hard to keep it maybe in a, a, a narrow, like, to- we're going to have to try to keep it as narrow as possible to try and not make it feel like we're drinking from a fire hose. For sure. Uh, for a little context, though, and I'd be curious to hear this, so so this is one of your favorite topics, and yes. I think it's one of my favorite also, but say a little bit about why this is exciting for you. Um, well, I was originally supervised under a psychodynamic therapist, which um, I probably don't practice in the way that um, I probably don't practice psychodynamic in the way that I did when I was an intern, uh, but I have a very deep appreciation for it. And I do believe that that is kind of the lens that I want to see my clients through and and still use those skills on a daily basis. Um, And we we aren't going to go into psychodynamic because that's a whole nother thing. We're going to actually let a guest come in and talk about that who specializes in it. Um, but I still believe that relationships are what heal us, and I believe that relationship dynamics are kind of potentially the answer to everything. It's always about um, kind of your role and interaction in this community with individuals in the community. Is that is that not the basis of all counseling? Sometimes it's pain management, but you know, if we're talking about something complex that seems out of the category like pain management, why is it that people with really good support systems seem to have less anxiety about their pain? You know what I mean? <laughs> I do know what you mean. Does it, does it all connect eventually when you're talking about it? I think so. And I, I have similar recollections as well of watching some people go through horrendously difficult situations, but because they have a support network of some sort or they have even like one or two other people who they can regularly have contact with, right. they, they have an edge that other people don't. Right. Um, and in contrast, things when we're talking about pain is this, you know, almost a scapegoat idea of, well, it's not relationships. Yeah, but it still seems to have a big interplay in our experience. And, and that sensation as being extremely distressing or extremely culpable uh, has a lot to do with our support system and how connected we are as people. Mm-hmm. And there's, I'm thinking of Max, that's just a. Uh, I'm thinking of my existential heroes with this too, thinking of reading books by Yalom about the existential realities. You know, one of the realities we grapple with is are are we alone in this great big void? And sometimes we'll run into really difficult situations that just don't have an answer and pain we just can't escape. But when you don't have to be in there alone, 
it's bearable in a way. Yeah. Um, you're not even finding hope for the end of it. You're just finding well, I, I've that. I've met people who had severe chronic pain who seemed very happy. And, and, and you can't tell me that they didn't suffer greatly on a daily basis. Yeah. Um, now, I don't expect everyone to figure that out, but I know that it's possible because I've seen it. Um, that's complex. There's probably a lot of things that go into that, you know, having a person get there. Um, <laughs> it's very complex. There's, there's got to be some wisdom down there somewhere, you know? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Anyways. <laughs> so, so we can say anecdotally, and I'm sure that were we to do the research that one could point to, those who have relationships yeah. tend to do better mm-hmm. in a lot of ways, even especially through the very difficult ways. Right. So then a, that, that's addressing the cop out answer, you know, but yeah. we, we can refocus and say, so what do we yeah. want to talk about? What do we want to focus right. on? If relationships, address the outlier. Yes. Like, you know? <laughs> if relationships are this important, then a pertinent question is how does one make healthy relationships? And more than that, how are relationships thwarted mm-hmm. by other factors? Like so, childhood, like childhood and childhood tends to be a factor in a lot of things, whether or not we like it to be. We would sometimes like to lock our inner child away in a closet and never see them again, but they tend to burst into the dining room at the most inopportune moments. So we will look at some different factors from early childhood that could potentially still be leaking into the present. I can start with the neurobiology. Oh, let's talk about neurobiology. Maybe the the, the basic Dan Siegel level may be a little bit okay. Right. Um, And if you want to learn more about the neurobiology, even though I'm pulling from a lot of different sources, Dan Siegel is perhaps the most aesthetic source to pull from. He's very smart and very readable. Mm -hmm. So I'm talking originally about uh, a couple things that maybe are a little bit even newer studies. Uh, Forgive me for not being able to quote the authors. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But there is a thing called mirror neurons, which was discovered studying rhesus monkeys in 1997. Basically, this was a scientist who was saying, here's a brain map of a monkey, a rhesus monkey, and this is uh, different states that it's in, uh, including one example of it's eating ice cream. And this is what a brain looks like when it's eating strawberry ice cream, okay? And then some confusion occurred later when they left the machine on and went on break. And someone looked up and they said, isn't that the pattern that suggests it's eating strawberry ice cream? Uh, to which they then looked over at the monkey and he was not, in fact, eating strawberry ice cream. He was looking through his cage through a break window and at an intern or somebody who was actually, in fact, eating some of the ice cream. Um, and I don't know what, what kind of placements or, or um, you know, or what parts of the brain, or what values or what biosignals they were charting. But it was essentially what we now call the mirror neuron system. Your mirror neuron system effectively can mirror your expected experience of the people around you. Um, and there's some really cool things uh, about attachment, like the still face experiment, which is worth Googling and looking up, um, where we are greatly affected by the experience of the people in our world, especially early childhood. And our brain forms based off of um, even their own affect and their feelings. Uh, do affect our feelings. Like sometimes as counselors, we see like multi-generational anxiety. And we're like, hey, this person had trauma, but why does the kid have anxiety? The kid doesn't have any trauma. Like, you know, like mm-hmm. what's that about? Well, there's well, some mirror neurons going on there. Yeah. yeah. I'm thinking of the dual concepts mm-hmm. or the two different concepts of attunement and modeling. Attunement being the one where you are able to perceive the internal state of the other person and hopefully respond appropriately and sensitively to that. Mm-hmm. And in a parent-child diet, that's extremely important for the parent to be able to do that in order to 
help the child learn emotional regulation right. and develop secure attachment. But there's a way also that the child also picks up on the emotional cues and affect and learns how to right. express and regulate emotion by watching how their parent handles emotion. How so if the parent is naturally overcoming and uh, being emotionally regulated and, and expressing emotional regulation, that the kid will intuitively, autonomically learn those skills? Yes. And, and likewise, if the parent is not able to regulate or if the parent, say, has a very flat affect, doesn't mm-hmm. express emotions at all, uh, that is what the kid will learn as well right. because of the mirror neurons and this other concept of modeling right. that was what um, Bandura talked about in his studies is how we learn by watching. Mm -hmm. We learn by watching what these significant figures in our lives do. We pick up on what is their intent, what is their desired outcome, what's the emotional component of it. We we learn how to mimic those same behaviors for the same results. And, And it might need to be stated that it is believed that when mirror neurons fire in specific patterns often enough, it does increase our capacity to engage in that behavior ourselves, much like becoming uh, better at emotional regulation because we are raised and modeled by a parent who is emotionally regulating. Yes. So So that which we are exposed to Mm -hmm. repeatedly becomes reinforced. It's that maxim, the neurons that fire together, wire together. Yep. And if the neurons that are firing and wiring are related to watching somebody manage their emotions well or watching that somebody connect with others well, or watching somebody, you know, fight all the time with people. Yeah, and that that gets into another area that might need to be addressed with mirror neurons, and that this was only proven maybe in the last couple of years by a scientist who went rogue and experimented on himself. Um, But that even on some deep level, deep in the brain, you do have mirror neurons that are stimulated by your own imagination. Uh, That's interesting. And that that wasn't proven for a very, very long time. It was a pretty recent development. Um, But that... Our imagination does actually affect uh, what we are developing towards. So if I'm daydreaming about XYZ, I'm building towards XYZ. I think it was uh, Michael Jordan who said that when he, you know, he, neurologically he's a fascinating guy because when he, I, you know, either this was the hypothetical or, or maybe they actually proved it, but when he shoots basketballs because he's so proficient at it, his brain would produce alpha waves instead of, you know, sensory motor rhythm waves. It's more meditative than it is action-oriented for someone who's a guru at something. And I don't know if they actually used him as an example or whether or not he actually, if that's just, you know, a great example of theory. Interesting. Um, so, but when he can't shoot basketballs anymore, uh, someone like Michael, J- Michael Jordan actually said this. He said he would actually close his eyes and just imagine shooting three-point shot. And there's another example from a long time ago, World War II fighter pilot crashes and full-body cast and then actually imagines while he's in this full body cast typing on a typewriter when he's finally out of his casts he's a brilliant typist um just because he had nothing but time to imagine Mm -hmm. typing well (laughs) well in recovery circles we'll sometimes talk about the the mental rehearsal Mm -hmm. and it's where you visualize yourself going through a day without using yes and you visualize what are all the choices i'm going to make throughout the day that will support my sobriety. It's it's really nice that we didn't have to have this proven for it to integrate into counseling, you know? Right. Because <laughs> like, it was only proven, like, I don't know, two or three years ago. Yeah, but it's already <laughs> been working, so there. Yeah, we have people knew. People were not shocked. Uh, yeah, so mirror neurons are fascinating. We could go on an entire hour on that, but we probably should we move could, on because there's so much. We but should that, move but on. That, that dynamic is really important, understanding neurodevelopment of children. It is really important. And it, I think it's really important 
in order to recognize that your child is not just a wretched, rebellious heathen, but there's actually an embodied brain component going on to where, yes, they're making choices and they have some volition, but there's also a a brain that's forming that they don't completely have control over. Correct. And that's partly, and the brain is partly under the control of the parents at all times anyway, because of all this modeling. So hopefully this can engender more compassion, understanding and patience for our kids because Lord knows they need it. Yeah. So let's talk about trust versus mistrust. Mm -hmm. This is again, the first stage of Eric Erickson's theory of psychosocial development. And we have in other episodes, uh, discussed Erickson at length in critiques what is the value of him and his theory and should we even be talking about it at all (laughs) and yet here we are talking about it because it will happen again it will happen again because um, white heteronormative as his theory is there's a little bit of basis to it so he talked about his stages the first one being trust versus mistrust and this is a stage when an infant is you know zero to a year and a half two-ish where in which they develop their instinctive sense for is the world trustworthy or not? Um, can I trust in things? Can I hope in things? Is it worth it being optimistic? And there's a lot of overlay with attachment theory where some of the very first essential questions a child is wrestling through are, are my needs going to get met? Are my primary caregivers going to come through for me? Are they going to be there consistently? Are they going to be absent consistently? Are they going to sometimes be there, sometimes not? Are they going to smother me with their own needs? Are they going to actually be the source of my distress? Right. Yeah, and a lot of times, I think with uh, very debilitating personality disorders, a lot of people are trying to, uh, or or do believe that it, it, it can be sourced back to some of those early developmental stages. Um, and I, I'm kind of, you know, mixed feelings about that. Uh, maybe there's always exceptions, but, but that it's very possible, like, um, that, 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 that is in fact the case, you know, where do personality disorders come from? Is it, is it coming from some trust versus mistrust baseline that got skewed some templates that are, that were kind of incorrectly imprinted on, um, I don't know. What do you think about that? What do I think about the origin of personality disorders? Well, I mean, because, you know, I'm trying to think of the most extreme dysfunction for relationship dynamics from childhood. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, personality I, disorders are kind of, are kind of, uh, you know, the worst case scenario. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. In many cases, uh, personality disorders are really severe uh, comorbid addictions. Yep, yep. In my admittedly limited study of attachment disorders, mm-hmm. I'm pretty convinced that they are a really pervasive pervasive factor in in all of life. And that, well, me being a very relational person, having a very relational worldview, I tend to look at the nature of our relationships as a really core element to all of our problems and successes. And so a dysfunctional relationship in early childhood would certainly be a strong catalyst for lots of stuff in the future. So thinking if there was dysfunction with the primary caregivers, right. And if there was compounded trauma after that, that should be kind of, you know, because neurologically when you're a young, young, young child, you know, when something goes wrong, what is the instinct response? What is that like, you know, brainstem response? It's, it's mom. Yeah. Cry for parents. What if, what if the distress is coming from mom, uh, whether it's, you know, a mirror neuron response to mom's emotions or what if mom is unstable? What if mom is emotionally dysregulated? What if mom is 
Emotionally unavailable. If the person you instinctively know is supposed to be the source of your comfort and they are indeed the source of your terror. That's a paradox. That's a paradox. And an completely and it's, and it's unsolvable. A, it's a brainstem one. paradox. Yes. And it, <laughs> it has no, it, it's a neurological paradox and mm-hmm. it's a psychological, even a spiritual paradox as well. Yeah. Where it just doesn't make sense. And it barely so makes the, sense to. What does the to, brain do when it has this kind of paradox? Right. So. On a regular basis, maybe. Yeah. You um, know. And then, you know, and I bet that uh, the right person could break that down into how that filters into certain personality disorders. For sure. I'm betting it could be extensive. Someone could make sense of that, I bet. I'm sure they could. And I would love to read that because I I bet it's a factor. Um, Mm -hmm. I mean, goodness, having an abusive parent that doesn't make sense to me as an adult who's able to think about it kind of rationally and it must make even less sense to a kid. And so to be living in a state of ongoing terror and uncertainty just releases so much cortisol and other things into the brain that are just really damaging. Well, and just to say like if mom's the source of the distress or if your primary support system is the source of your distress and you still have that instinctual reaction to move towards the support system. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, again, we, we referenced the stills face experiment and which you can find the still face experiment on just like YouTube. Um, what happens when the child stops reaching out to mom because the brain realizes this programming script is not working. So it prunes that instinct. Um, there, can, there has to be some very complex problems. Anyways, that could be a whole week someday. We should invite somebody. We should find somebody who can talk on that. We should totally do that. <laughs> I don't feel equipped to, to really break that one down except for asking hard questions. Mm-hmm. Um, what about older ages? I feel more competent discussing older ages, where dysfunction comes in. Like what older ages? Well, older developmental stages, um, for example, I see a lot of cases where clients come into my office and they have some symptoms, whether it be like depression or anxiety, and they can't really pin it to something specific, um, but they have kids. And ultimately, I can't begin to tell you how often this happens. Um, It's probably because they had something happen traumatically in their childhood that their brain said, "Mm, I can't really handle this. I'm going to put this away. It happens a lot because your brain isn't fully developed until the age of 25. So a lot of times if something's very, very complex, it'll just put it away. But then something really funny happens. Let's say that happens to you at the age of nine. Uh, when you have kids and you have a you know kid who is your same gender, maybe it is, maybe, maybe it doesn't matter, that turns nine or becomes the same size that you were, something funny can just happen in the brain. And you might have some really out of place ab reactions like depression or anxiety. And it doesn't always really make sense with the context of your current living situation. And so I think the theory goes with a lot of professionals that, hmm, Maybe this is unresolved from your trauma when you were nine. Um, Maybe it, you know. back to the mirror neurons. Right. As your child is doing something that is connected to deep memory for you and your right. your neurons are exposed to what they're doing, then that reawakens that memory. So the neurons that fire together, wire together, and that there's some associative stimuli that, that sets off the trauma right. or sets off the processing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think it's important to mention here, we're talking a little bit about trauma, things mm-hmm. that go on. It's important to remember that trauma is not restricted to gun violence and ritualistic sexual abuse. It could be just my parent yelled at me a lot or I was always the last one picked up from school. I had this negative sensation and I didn't know how to get rid of it. Yes, something (laughs) uncomfortable, something distressing. I was hungry a lot. I was picked on a lot. My parents were critical. My standards were too high. And it, it can be really, really subjective. And one thing that's 
you know, traumatic to one individual might not be traumatic to another because it all comes down to that subjective, I have this negative sensation and this negative cognition and my brain can't resolve it. It doesn't have the tools or it's not developed enough to solve this. Mm. And arguably that's trauma because your brain goes, this is too complex. I'm going to put this over here. Mm -hmm. Trauma is whatever is overwhelming either in the moment or over a long period of time. Right. And I think that's, that's important to remember too is that a lot of the little T traumas we experience are... Mm -hmm kind of distressing conditions that exist over a long period of time. Yeah. Um, That's a whole nother talk about like chronic trauma versus acute trauma. Right. But it'll create (laughs) some sort of anxiety, some sort of sadness, and you just, you live with that long enough and it it compounds and it becomes normal. Yeah. Um, I mean, some of those developmental patterns where we have like anniversaries and like some anniversaries are, are like, I can't sleep at night. We talk about every night's an anniversary. Well, sometimes, you know, it's not really, you know, annual like a year, but that having a kid turn nine is is kind of like an anniversary that only comes around like, boom, you know, mm-hmm. when your kid turns nine. Uh, if you have sleep disorders and there's trauma around, you know, sleep or nighttime, then maybe every night feels like an anniversary. And so there's some, you know, neurons that fire together, wire together, developmental things that might be resurfaced later on in life or might be constant present with constant, you know, associative networks, you know, stimulating you know, uh, that negative cognition. So looking at other elements of early childhood relationships that affect mm-hmm. current relationships, we had brought up role repetition or you had brought that one up. Okay. What's your thought there? Role repetition. I'm trying to remember what that was intended to mean. I believe role repetition, meaning maybe that if you say are raised by a parent that has borderline personality disorder, you are more likely to marry someone with borderline personality disorder. Mm. Um, and that, maybe you find that that role almost unconsciously just gets filled in mm-hmm. your life. Yeah, or not even a parent with borderline personality disorder, but a parent with any sort of personality, a uh, really domineering father or domineering mother or super outgoing father, outgoing mother, and you might tend right. to be drawn toward a person like that when you're looking for a partner. And it, it probably goes further than just like, you know, partner, but, but that's the one that pops to mind. Like if we are always, you know, pursuing the wrong relationships, um, there might be a reason. There might be. <laughs> and I wonder if it's just, again, it, it goes back to the early childhood. What was modeled for you? Yeah. What was normalized for you? What were the initial stimuli around which your brain created neural pathways? That that's becomes your normal, your template. And we, tend to be drawn to things that are normal, familiar, and and same to us. Yeah, I like that term template a lot because I think it it really helps in a clinical perspective. Um, You know, this is my understanding of normal. Um, And it it actually really needs to be said that just about everybody, with very few exceptions, will really come into your office and just believe that they had a normal childhood. And it doesn't matter if they were raped or not. Right. (laughs) They just think they had a normal childhood. And it's shocking how often that's true. That's true. And for them, it it was their normal. And that's that's often the work is to lead someone to believe, well, actually, your normal was was abusive or your normal was dysfunctional. Or, you know, maybe if your normal was really privileged, you know, not everybody has your normal and you need to be aware of that. And if if your childhood was normal, then then you're going to be really confused by all these symptoms that your peers don't have. And you're going to go, why do I have to have these? Well, maybe we need to work on your story. Why? It was normal. (laughs) Right. It takes a lot of work to seek out what's not normal to, to me. Uh, it takes a lot of work for any individual to seek out that which is different. It takes a lot of work for a person to seek out and spend regular time with that which is different. Yes. And goodness, I can see that playing out all over the political spectrum or in any yeah. given religious debate or social debate. Um, people with different experiences who 
demonstrate an intolerance of the other perspective, and that intolerance may be better understood as a lack of comprehension yeah. of yeah. that as valid. And so, but then there are those blessed people in the middle who have the cognitive capacity to embrace attention and say, ah, so there's my experience, which is normal for me, and your experience, which is normal for you. And I can actually comprehend both and appreciate both and maybe even learn from both. Right. Well, and, and, and maybe along the, where people are more dialectical and they're more able to like understand that there's difference in experiences or people who maybe had more context. Um, I'm trying to think of a really good example. Um, you know, really nothing that I can use. There are kids who have different types of experiences and different types of relationships sometimes have the ability to um, have context. And then when there's context, there's choice. Uh, when there isn't context, there really isn't actually that much choice in a child's brain. They're, they're really not that complex yet. and They don't have that much introspection skills yet. There's not a lot of frontal lobe development going on until much later in life. Well, I'm wondering... By way of example, if, if we could talk about a difference between, say, a child who grows up in a very uh, sheltered environment, which they would have a lot of stability, perhaps, if it's you know one location that they live in and one group of people, maybe one ideology that they that they grew up with. Right, and even if that's good, if yeah. there's no if there's no contrast, right, then they 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 might have a lot of stability and maybe security in that, but with a limited capacity for say empathy or or, or dialectics compared Correct. to a person who um, even maybe, had secondary exposure to right you know, other or experiences. some multiple different kinds of people or moved a lot or mm-hmm. got to travel to many places or I've, I've heard a lot of stories of you know uh, parents who you know were born with or, or sorry they had a child who was born just a genius and it was evident from an early age they have to take them to soup kitchens and they have to yeah. go to homeless shelters and they have to volunteer at different programs to get them exposure to real life because they'll, they'll quickly leave. Um, they'll they'll quickly be too far ahead and and lose empathy. And a person like that, who's exposed to multiple stories, multiple Mm -hmm. paradigms, there is a stress that goes with that because it's disequilibrating to be continually exposed to things that are new and different. You have to constantly be creating new paradigms for that. But the benefit to that is that you have this capacity to understand multiple worlds. You have a deeper capacity, a more instinctive capacity for empathy and for attunement. And I would venture to say it's these people who have experienced more than one way of being more able to practice a true compassion. So uh, developmental relationship, there's, a, there's so much to cover on this one. Uh, what else do we want to touch on? We talked about mastery, okay. which you had pointed out is not a mastery of skill, but rather almost a mastery of an experience or in a way kind of processing an experience. Yeah, and mastery can, can, go, can work against you. Yes. Um, and and I, I think I told you earlier the example of Let's say, you know, we learn about these concepts like mastery and recapitulation, which we'll probably talk about next. But, but mastery can go sideways on you if, say, like, well, my parents beat me, so I won't discipline my kids at all. And it's not that cognitive. It's, it's really limbic and it's really unconscious. And, and it becomes this neurotic inability to actually provide structure <coughs> to your kids. But, um, but mastery can, can go sideways on you. Mastery can also be a great example of uh, my favorite being Disneyland. What's the guy's name? Walt Disney. Walt Disney. Sorry. So Walt Disney might be my favorite example of mastery. I mean, I don't think that he had a good childhood during the Great Depression. 
I'm pretty sure his dad was depressed. I think that's how the story goes. Right. Um, I mean, I think somebody else should probably do a more refined, you know, you know, example of his story, but it was bleak. And so why would someone who had a bleak, bleak childhood make the world's happiest place and try to give it its own like identity, like a land? (laughs) It's, it's mastery. Um, that's my guess. I don't think I'm wrong. Could be so. Yeah. So he's playing out his story. And it's causing him to push into building something that's story-driven. Yeah. And only only Disneyland could have been built from a story-driven, you know, right. energy. In his case, it's the story he never had or the story he may have always wanted and was unable to have as a child. Or, or the polar opposite of what he had. Yeah. That, yeah. that if his, his childhood were actually better, Disneyland may have been less intensely good. Maybe so. So I almost wonder if an alternate term for mastery could be fulfillment in a way. Like... My childhood was bad, so I'm going to fulfill my childhood experience by turning it good, or maybe I'll redeem it by making it something better for yeah. someone. Yeah, I mean, I, I I think I would, you know, mastery might also qualify as I had a parent with borderline personality disorder, so I marry a spouse with borderline personality disorder, and that I couldn't fix that, but I'm trying to fix this. So, uh-huh. so you're not you're not able to reach fulfillment, uh, and it's 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 possible that Walt Disney was unable to reach fulfillment. Um, I don't know. Um, that that's how it works. I'm uncertain. But this definitely <laughs> warrants further discussion. So if anybody out there wants to discuss this with, yeah, us, with leave us, comment. <laughs> yes, leave comments on the Facebook page. So the last factor we were going to talk about today in our list of childhood relationship things that affect our current relationships, we talked about recapitulation. Yes. And uh, the other for side of the coin. Yes. And so for those of us who do any sort of psychodynamic group counseling and have read anything by Yalom, we recognize. So uh, if I have like inconsistent relationships as a child and things are right. you know, flip-flopping and back and forth, there's and the drive to recapitulate yep. family of origin or to, to replay it or to process it. Right. And some of this, I, I venture, it is a trauma reaction. Yes. And, Both um, of them are. Yes. <laughs> so, for example, you watch a child, say a small child, two or three, drop a broom and it makes a loud noise and they're startled. You'll see them sometimes do it again. throw it down <laughs> and make that loud noise again and again and again for a couple minutes until yeah. they're done and then they then they can walk away from it. And it's in a sense they're they're recapitulating it, getting well, an understanding and of it. This is where I get a little confused because because that I'm wondering if that's mastery or recapitulation, and and the terms sometimes get a little you know uh, confusing to me too. Like mm-hmm. like is he saying I'm going to experience this until I've mastered it? I would actually. Or, I could I could think of uh, a Dan Siegel term and just mm-hmm. talk about inter- integration mm-hmm. and it, and I think of this too when listening to someone talk about their their story mm-hmm. is you know how many of us have sat with a person who's gone through a breakup for four or five six twelve eighteen coffee dates and they're still talking about that breakup mm. and I don't think it's that they're just emotionally sappy and obsessed I, I think it is that that breakup hurt. And their brain is trying to figure to out what it, do yes. I do with it. Yeah. And so that, that mastery or recapitulation or maybe just integration is them yeah. talking and talking. Or failure to integrate. Or yeah. failure to integrate, yeah. <laughs> they have to talk about it some, in a, a certain amount in order to fully understand and resolve themselves with it. And, and then they can move sometimes on. Like there are adjunctive therapies like EMDR, which will speed that process up right. greatly. Right. Or, or just stop it from getting stuck. Because I'm not sure that people are making any progress sometimes. You know, ooh, you, right, you know, you know what I'm talking about. Right, <laughs> yes, and it can get easy to sit in that. Well, I'm just recapitulating, 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 yeah. and yeah. so you can, it does help to have a trained person to kind of recognize yeah. the pattern and accelerate the process. Well, and I, I also uh, wonder if, like, recapitulation. I've heard the term being used, in, and I might be wrong, um, but uh, in regards to like, well, I was abused, and then I become an abuser. 
Um, or potentially, I was abused, so I want to become a rescuer. Hmm. Yeah, and that's where I get confused on the terms, and, and maybe I've got them mixed up, or maybe you've got them mixed up, but uh, but one of them is supposed to be recapitulation, and the other one's supposed to be mastery. Am I right? I think you got me there. Okay, I don't know. One of us is wrong. <laughs> Please comment and tell us. Right. <laughs> yeah, but but it definitely shows up when talking when we talk about the mm-hmm. tasks of a psychodynamic group session. Yeah. You know, we're looking for, you know, all these things, all these things we're hoping to accomplish, uh, and one of them being recapitulating family of, of origin, recognizing yeah. you know our family of origin is kind of being recreated here in this group just because it does. Is there a way to replay that? better than we did before or am I just locked into that pattern yeah. or can I escape that pattern so and, and to bring this into context we're talking about like childhood experiences that seem to resonate and just echo for the rest of your life and and that if you have habits behaviors cognitions emotions sensations um, that just echo maybe maybe on a repetitive basis or maybe chronically it might be something like that it might be something from your your story your childhood story yeah Mm -hmm. so let's see if we can uh, tie this together with a real life theoretical fabricated example so say we've got a client who is experiencing depression and anxiety and difficulty trusting and has just had a series of breakups and they don't know why they can't make a relationship work so if we were going to say that's your current relationship dynamic, going over some of the points we've hit today, what could we theorize may be going on for, for this person? If they're, if they're engaging in like, the same relationships over and over again. Yeah, or, or, or so, 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 their, so their symptoms are depression, anxiety, difficulty oh, trusting, see, and yeah. they have just, say they've had three breakups in the last year, mm-hmm. which who knows how volatile or not they were, but there's that pattern of I can't quite keep a relationship Yes. And maybe they have very few other close friends on top of it. Yeah. Um, if we were going to look at the trust versus mistrust factor, what might be going on there? So for trust versus mistrust... Well, what I'm thinking is that if my early paradigm was that I can't not trust relationships and yes. people are not going to be there for me and it's just better off if I'm by myself and I'm better off taking care of myself, then that's going to be fairly deep and hard to unroot. Mm-hmm. So... So if I go into my adult relationships with this thought of, hey, being with someone is kind of fun, and maybe I like the affection, maybe I like the sex, but I don't really let them into my life, and I don't really get into their lives, and I'm more, I just, I'm taking care of myself, that might come across as either a lack of intimacy, which could be dissatisfying, or I'm actually using this person in a way, or I end up using this person to meet my needs without being able to pay attention to theirs, which could get frustrating for them. Right. Because in the... dynamics that were modeled uh, from their childhood or dynamics that were pushed onto them and personally experienced, whether they were modeling it or whether they were experiencing it, again, we're seeing um, some of those cognitions and dynamics continue to echo throughout all their relationships right. as they grow up or as they continue to yes. develop and be older. I observed mm-hmm. exploitive or distant or so, yeah, exploitive relationships. Distance, uh, and because that's what I observed, then that's... Emotional, volatile yes. relationships that those, those patterns are just repeating themselves. Yeah, because that's instinctively what I know. And so unless I go through a process of inner work... Well, and, and I think like when we're... So we use the example of like, you know, intimate relationships or like, you know, people who are in dating relationships. Um, and we've talked a few times about people who seem to keep going after the same person 
I'm sorry, the same kind of personality or the same kind of people with the same kinds of problems or, or where there's just the same root error, you know, with the relationship dynamics. We, I like to use the example from Jim Velez where he talked about rocking boats are attracted to rocking boats. Mm. And the reason why is because, you know, we've, we've got this rocky nervous system with this kind of rocky expectation and we're kind of might be a little emotional volatile ourselves for our own developmental uh, reasons. Um, but if we engage in a relationship with somebody who also is rocking, like you guys can find the beat, you kind of both rock back and forth together. In the metaphor, there, that there's some sort of homeostasis there uh, for a while. Right. Um, that rocking boats are attracted to rocking boats. Um, and that, I think that's not always because you have a rocking boat or it could just be that you grew up with relationships that were rocking, were unstable, volatile, and that is just what you're used to. Right. Um, and unconsciously, that's that's what maybe you have chemistry for. Right. So you might so you might alternately either seek out another rocking boat or be drawn to your opposite. Yes. But then once you get to it, you realize you don't know what to do with it, and so either turn yes. them into a rocking boat or leave. And um, it's it's not so like cognitively thought through. It's very unconscious. Very unconscious. Behavior. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So thinking about uh, mirror neurons and attachment. So here you are. Our, Mm-hmm. Our fictitious person, you know, just finished their third breakup of the year, doesn't have very many friends, is depressed, is anxious, has difficulty trusting. How are the mirror neurons and attachment style factoring in to what they're experiencing? Um, one more time. I missed the first part of your question. Uh, so our, our fictitious person, our fictitious okay. client, three breakups this year, yes. not really any friends. They're depressed, anxious. They have difficulty trusting how might their mirror neurons and early attachment style be factoring into their experience? Um, That's a really good question. Um, I don't really feel super qualified to answer that one, but I think it can be that um, their experience of volatile relationships um, could be projected or, or intentionally recreated. Um, I think that, I think mirror neurons are a large factor in, um, how we find kind of our, our group or the people that we are naturally drawn to, which again, are templates set long before you made any choices on the matter. Mm-hmm. And so those mirror neurons, I think are a big part of, of how we find each other and how we group up into whatever groups we find. I don't think it's always, I don't think it's, I don't think it's so objective. <laughs> right. I don't know. Were you looking for a different answer? No, I'm, I enjoy hearing your thoughts all the time. Um, think about, I'm thinking about the mirror neurons and how we will, mimic and model the things set before us, especially in, in early childhood. And then... They're really imprinting. They're, they're really imprint. And I, guess, and I guess I'm assuming that at some point, what you're initially mirroring in early childhood, eventually you start just doing that on your own and it internalizes and they right. it becomes your own template right. to where then you will then do that in adulthood. What you mirrored in childhood, you will now be performing in adulthood. and It has a, it has a direct impact on your nervous system, whether you do it or whether you do the opposite. Right. Um, to whether and good or bad right. in both ways. And so once you get to adulthood, if you want to just suddenly change your thought patterns or relationship patterns, uh, it's a nice idea. But yes. you're not going to be able to just think your way out of that. You're going to need new, new neurons to mirror. Yes. So you need yes. new relationships, <laughs> yeah. new types of relationships, mm-hmm. new environments. Yeah, you're not you're not stuck there forever. It is unconsciously driven, but you you have to kind of engage the conscious mind. You have to get the context that we talked about and start having uh, context. Sometimes it's so deeply hardwired that we have to do some like more deeper psychoanalysis 
or engage in some of those other supportive adjunctive therapies to try to kind of rewire some of those early templates. Um, I'm sure some therapists believe that they can't be rewired. I, mean, I, I don't believe that at all. Yeah, um, I don't either. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it is hard work, and, and it's, 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 it's like being reparented, or it's like finding a mentor, or it's like um, you know, engaging in a, uh, you know, a, a, another support system where they, over the years, imprint different cognitions into you and different patterns into you. And then you have that context and you have that choice and um, and it's not just so unconsciously driven at that point. It becomes a little bit more of there are two parts of me at war, and the one that's going to win is the one that I feed. And that who what you feed, a lot of that has to do with your actions, your behavior, and what you daydream about, really, right. what you want. And daydreaming, again, was that we talked about how they finally proved that that impacts yeah. mirror neurons, which impacts your future development. Right. Um, so, so taking every thought captive... <laughs> I like um, that passage very much. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> uh, taking, you know, serious hard look at what we engage in, what we think about, who we spend our time with. Right. Um, and that does determine our, our future development. Yeah. So our fictitious person gets into the realm of role repetition, mastery, recapitulation, taking their childhood or their past and doing something with it in their present, mm-hmm. whether they redo it or they do something different. Right. Um, at that point, so our, our fictitious person, they, they haven't been able to have stable relationships. They haven't been able to experience trust. They've been experiencing depression and anxiety. If they want to not fall victim to their patterns and continue to re- perpetuate them, but right. want to do something different, like we're saying, they need to have new experiences, mm-hmm. which could be in the new relationships. And they need to learn different ways of thinking at the, about themselves. And like you said, this changing your patterns process, I think it can be done. It takes a lot of work over changing a lot of time. Yeah, yeah <laughs> but it takes learning to think in a whole different way. It, yeah. You know, thinking about your thinking, metacognition, yep. thinking about your feelings, talking about your feelings, really being able to analyze what are my instincts. You know, this thing happened outside of me and I, and I reacted this way. Right. Was I actually able to stop and think about what did I do and why and what was I feeling and why and can I trace that even further back into, well, there's this pattern I do that I've done since I was two and my mom did such and such. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's the work. And that's a lot of the, the therapy work we do is promoting that self-reflection that can lead to that self-regulation that will hopefully also lead to being able to successfully connect well with other peers. Yes. And have different dynamics, different relationship patterns. Right. Yep. And all of which is going to be extremely disorienting and frustrating and possibly really terrifying because it's new experiences and nobody yeah. likes new things. There's, there's one more little thing that's worth mentioning, and I'll, I brought it up a couple of times. I'll bring it up again. Um, but there's a, um, a particular person, foster parent, adoptive parent, who talks a lot about different skills, how we have um, lonely skills and we have family skills. And sometimes we are raised in a family that had some, some, some bad templates and some bad patterns. Um, where we picked up a lot of lonely skills. Um, and they perpetuate loneliness. Um, they're skills. They solve problems. They do indeed. But they end in loneliness. And um, sometimes I think, I think that perspective is also helpful when just trying to navigate it and make it sound simple. What are your lonely skills? What are your family skills? What are your community skills? Because um, we acknowledge that we all solve problems. We just have 
poor ways of solving problems. Right. And we have good ways of solving problems. We are great at solving problems. We are not great at solving problems well yes, all the time. Exactly. We solve problems and we get lonely. Yes, we do. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, I'm going to call it there, but this has been a great overview of mm-hmm. some really big concepts any one of which should probably be their own podcast episode in the future. Yeah, so, we just, yeah, created five more topics. Yes, we will hopefully get to revisit those. So again, if anybody is out there and wants to talk about these things with us further, either reach out to us to invite yourself onto the show or mm-hmm. please do leave your comments on the Facebook page or on the Twitter account. Please do feel free to rate and review our podcast on SoundCloud and iTunes. And we will be back next time with more Smart Counsel. Please be sure to rate and review the podcast on iTunes and SoundCloud. We love your feedback, and let's keep the conversation going. Follow Smart Council on Facebook at Smart Council Podcast, on Twitter at Smart Council 601, and you can email us your questions and comments and feedback at smartcouncilpodcast at gmail.com. Joshua Moore can be found on the web at neurofeedbackcare.com. And Reese Pesimio can be found on the web at newpatterncounseling.com. Our theme music is by Nate Botsford. Our logo design is by Thomas Moore. This episode was mastered by Julie Patterson. Smart Council has been produced by Reese Pesimio and Joshua Moore.